This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This BFM Budget 2023 special is brought to you by Ma Singh. Good afternoon. You're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. Budget 2023 will be tabled in Parliament this Friday, the 7th of October. Prime Minister Dato Sri Ismail Sabri Yaakob previously stated that the government will table a gender-responsive budget this year, especially for B40 households. But what should a gender-responsive budget look like and how should the government address the needs of women? Joining me on the show today to share their insight is Janelle Tan. She's the Information and Communications Officer at the All Women Action Society, AWAM as well as Professor Dr. Noraida Endut. She's a professor at Unit for Research on Women and Gender, Kanita. Both Janelle and Prof. Noraida are part of the Gender Budget Group. Welcome to the show, ladies. How are y'all doing? I'm all right, thanks. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to be back. Prof, um, let's uh, let's get your thoughts on this first. Um, before we get into the the topic at hand, um, what is the Gender Budget Group? Okay, basically, the Gender Budget Group is a is a coalition of twenty one of civil society organisations, which basically is a uh, broadly involved a wide variety of NGOs as well as academicians uh, independently. So uh, basically, the the idea is to represent various intersectional uh, issues and target groups uh, that advocates uh, gender equality um, and cross uh, social justice. And uh, it is actually led by the the Engender Consultancy and uh, Women's Aid Organization. Prof, why is gender budgeting important? The gender rep- responsive budgeting is not necessarily doing budget differently uh, for women. I think uh, people need to understand it's not allocation of uh, of funds uh, uh, to women. It's more than that. It's actually doing uh, a critical analysis of uh, needs of different groups of people before we uh, uh, in in the in the throughout the process of um, preparing for budget and actually allocating uh, budget to the people. When we prepare uh, budgets or we prepare allocations uh, for 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 the people, we have a kind of idea that the needs are standard. You know, the need of the poor is uh, is standard. The need of certain marginalized group uh, is standard. But uh, within the group, within the marginalized group, uh, that there is something that we call uh, uh, interse- uh, intersectionality. That means there are there are basically women and men within the group, and the needs of women and men are different. The needs of uh, the needs of women. And men in different categories are different, you know, whether they are B40 or the T20. We must also realize that there are certain uh, issues within a marginalized uh, group that uh, that are quite common. You know, for, for women, for example, there are issues that are common within the uh, within the economic spectrum. So basically, gender responsive budgeting interrogate these different positions of people so that allocations can be made more justly, more fairly, more equally, more substantively equal. Now, Janelle, can you give us a brief summary before we go into Budget 2023, right? Give us a brief summary of what this year's, as in Budget 2022, looked like. Did it do enough to address um, women's rights issues, for example, um, particularly when it comes to, let's say, sexual and reproductive health, education, but other issues as well, such as domestic violence and so on and so forth? Off the top of my head, the ones that I remember, first one is... 13 million ringgit to strengthen D11 in addition to creating the 100 new posts. Um, the second one that comes to mind is um, 4.5 million ringgit for uh, 
local social support centers and 10 million ringgit to set up special shelters for women. Uh, I think these two, um, the one that I just mentioned, uh, were um, primarily designed to protect uh, domestic violence survivors. Another one that definitely came to mind was um, the 100, was it 10 million ringgit to implement the initiative of distributing um, free personal hygiene kits ah, to 130,000 um, B40 teenagers. So my questions, or rather gender, but the gender budget scoops questions would probably be to this. So for example, to the 13 million ringgit to strengthen the 11, right? I came across uh, YB Kasturi's Pato, Pato's question in um, one of the English newspapers, uh, and I resonated fully with that. Um, how was the 13 million ringgit spent? Nobody knows. Um, was the amount fully... You know, like, how was it utilized? Because it was mentioned 100 new posts be created, right? And let's not forget here, over the last couple of months, there have been statistics released by the police or even Rina Harun, YB Rina Harun herself, um, about the concerning statistics of child sexual abuse. Something about 100 plus thousand IP addresses um, being detected uh, that involves child pornography slash child online, uh, online child sexual exploitation. And the thing is, even um, the D11 rep also said so herself that there was a lack of trained staff to filter and scrutinize the IP addresses received and only 103 IP addresses were checked, which led to the arrest of 50 individuals. So you can see the huge institutional undercapacity here to address this increasing trend of um, sexual violence, in this case, among children. Lah. I mean, we're not going to even go to the other forms of gender-based violence for now. Um, but so how was this 13 million ringgit spent? How is it allocated across the 11 um, you know, um, officers, for example, um, and manpower capacity to address manpower capacity across the states? And we also have to remember that, you know, like state states are different in size, population sizes are different um, with different densities, right? So Sabastrawa, are there enough in the first place? Um, are we allocating too much in certain states in the peninsula when more should have been allocated to East Malaysia and et cetera? So we don't have answers to all these questions. And then, okay, another example. Huh? Let's go to the one about, um, I think, uh, special shelters set up for women. The the 10 million ringgit one right. and then the local social support. Right? I mean, um, yes, the inadequate number of shelters has been a long-standing problem. I think um, we are very far behind when it comes to the... Um, recommended standard lah, for the shelter family place. Um, but the thing is, we also have the issue where um, members of the public, many of them are going for NGO shelters because that seems to be an avenue that they're more aware of. Whereas there's very lacking awareness towards the JKM shelters. So right. you'll find a case where more people are going to NGO shelters leading to overcapacity and then underutilization of the other 40 plus JKM shelters across the country. Um, and so, you know, like, what were, was monitoring evaluation, for example, of the SOPs of these shelters being undertaken? Um, how is communications um, in terms of to the public being conducted to improve access of the other JKM shelters to these members of the public who need them? Um, another question I would throw at them would be, what, what, what is the number of shelters they're looking to 
set up, right? And then how are you going to distribute again? How are you going to distribute them across the states? Because, you know, different areas may already have different shelters. And then you obviously have to do a mapping first, right? Of, okay, like existing shelters along where, you know, where else are more, you know, like in, in of high need. Lah. So these questions are also not, not 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 addressed or at least not apparent i think to a lot of us here so um there is uh, there's a long way in terms of um the government answering questions in response to the impact of budget allocation and i think that again goes back to more transparent and especially systematic government reporting so um a lot needs to be done when it comes to providing more information and in a transparent and systematic manner about the impact of these budget budget allocations. Now, Prof, um, Janelle brought up a great points, um, particularly about, you know, transparency and, and the difficulty the, pub, the public has and even civil society to scrutinise um, where, you know, the budget is spent. You can announce 13 million for this, 10 million for that, so on and so forth. But how are you spending the money? It's difficult to scrutinise because of the lack of data. Um, what are your thoughts, Prof, on budget 2022 and how effective was it in accomplishing its goals? Basically, I think um, I agree uh, with Janelle in um, most of her analysis of the, of the issue. So, for example, uh, there are incentives to employers to hire unemployed single mothers and housewives. Um, there is the I, Saraan and Suri to require a contribution uh, or to encourage contribution to some kind of social security in the form of the EPF. For example, Securities Commission are given some funds um, to ensure at least one female director's uh, uh, director in boards of public uh, listed companies. And we have the 5 million given to Yaisan Kepimpinan uh, Wanita, which I'm not sure I have any knowledge about uh, what it is, where it is, and so on, uh, for leadership and entrepreneurship. Um, 230 million for women entrepreneurs uh, via Dananita and Tekonita, 30 million on childcare facilities in government buildings, um, tax exemption up to 3,000 uh, 3, for payment of childcare facilities, of course, SRH uh, won 11 million for mammogram and pap smear, menstrual aid for B40 girls. These are all very well-intentioned uh, allocations. But if you don't have the GRB analysis and the GRB practice and, 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 and process, uh, so this is where you lose out uh, on actually creating impact, creating the outcome of gender equality. Um, so so uh, Janelle talked about substantive equality. I think uh, three important uh, three important uh, aspects of substantive equality is that there should be formal equality, which which is in the form of rules and regulations and law. You know, the the law the law must be clear that gender equality uh, uh, is the intended uh, outcome. Um, then there must be equality of ex uh, equality uh, so so equality of opportunity, so equality of access, the formality. So like the budget like uh, uh, laws that we make on uh, on sexual harassment, on anti-stalking. Um, so, uh, but there must also be an equality of outcome. We also need to interrogate the, the process. That means when you talk about uh, giving aids uh, to families, okay? so because we talk about the, the unit of the family, who will actually get the money? The, the pervasive view is that the head of household is, uh, uh, are the men, so it will be the man who probably will get the money, but whether the whether the man will ensure that the money will trickle down to the members of the family in a fair manner, so that's another question. Right. So in in in, uh, in GRB, we need to interrogate this. We need to, for example, 
understand um, how how funds are, how how resources are controlled at the family level, whether there are whether there are power relations in controlling, whether whether women get access or, or even children get access to the benefit of the aid. So uh, and um, uh, the, the the public health 32.4 billion 32.4 billion funds on public health whether this trickle to allocation based on uh, on um, uh, illnesses based on on gender for example women and men experience uh, diseases in a different way uh, uh, because of their bi- biological makeup so so whether you know what priorities are given to uh, to to illnesses that are normally uh, experienced by women, women cancers, sexual and reproductive health issues for women, whether how much is this trickled down uh, in that way. So if you don't have that kind of analytical framework uh, in coming up with a, with a budget, so, so the budget may not be uh, very effective. On the show with me today is Professor Dr. Noraida Endut and Janelle Tan of the Gender Budget Group. After the break, we discuss how Budget 2023 should address the issues we've been discussing. Keep it here on Live and Learn, PFM 89.9. Stay tuned to BFM's Budget 2023 special, brought to you by Marsing. This BFM Budget 2023 special is brought to you by Marsing. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashan Johan, and on the show with me today is Professor Dr. Noraida Endut and Janelle Tan of the Gender Budget Group. And we're discussing how Budget 2023 should address the needs of women. So 2023 is going to be a very different year in in a sense uh, compared to, let's say, 2020, 2021, because at that point, we were in the height of the pandemic. Um, Now, you know, when we look at 2022, 2023, we're sort of um, dealing with the after effects of the pandemic and, and you know, which presents a unique set of challenges and so on and so forth. Um, Prof, what are, what are the challenges that women have faced after two years of the pandemic? Um, when you look at, let's say, 2022, the challenges that women face this year, heading into next year, what are some of the challenges that you like to highlight? The lockdown and the uh, working from home uh, context have dramatically changed uh, a lot of uh, issues that were already Issues that were already perpetuating inequality in the, the, the society, but it has actually um, dramatically enhanced um, the, the experience of inequality. When you talk about the gender gap uh, between men and women in the workforce, globally, there were there were immediate impact of gender division of labor at home, which in turn uh, in, uh, seriously impact women's ability to be more, to be productive in their workplace. So. There were many uh, there were many data around the world to show that, for example, amongst academicians, um, the productivity of uh, in Australia, for example, the productivity of women uh, goes down by eleven percent, whereas for men, um, very much less. So, women are normally at the lower rung of the economic chain. Um, so, the risk of the, uh, losing jobs are mostly um, can be clearly seen uh, in in women. And we and and you will see dramatically also for Malaysia uh, our um, our uh, female labour force participation in 2021, which is basically data of 2020, reported by the World Economic Forum for uh, under the under the global uh, global gender gap index uh, report. Uh, so we were 55.5 percent. Uh, 50 uh, our labour force participation rate for women. Uh, was 55.5 percent, but the latest uh, the latest report for 2022, which actually covers the the, the year 2021, 
it's actually 51.4%. So that's a dramatic the dramatic uh, reduction. Whereas we, we are already low, 55.55% is already low uh, as far as uh, compared to men. Men, uh, men is 80%, 80.9% uh, uh, labor force participation rate. Um, but they went down to a little bit. They went down to seventy, um, uh, seventy nine, seventy seven. You know, so the reduction uh, in the labor force participation rate is higher amongst uh, women than men. So we, our rank, uh, Malaysia plan, uh, twelve Malaysia plan actually targets fifty nine percent. Actually, our eleventh Malaysia plan targeted fifty nine percent, but right. we didn't achieve it, and then we have to retarget it as fifty nine percent again. So, but but if if it goes down to fifty one percent, you know, can we achieve? more than 2% increase every year uh, by 2025. So these are all uh, 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 analysis that we need to do in understanding uh, the challenges. You know, how, how do we deal with unequal gender division of labor? You know, uh, it, it continues in a way, even though uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, recovery, uh, it's a recovery period. But some of this uh, continue, you know, the, the, the impact of, you know, the, the, the children, um, you know how 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 children are mostly uh, mostly uh, ish, basically uh, taken care of by women at home, while they also have to be uh, to be catering for their own uh, jobs. If you don't think about this uh, when planning for a budget, then you will not be addressing the critical issue experiencing by this. Um, Janelle, what are other challenges that you like to highlight? You know, it's pretty much violence, right? I would right. say gender-based violence. Um, but I think all of us, a lot of the uh, members of the Malaysian public are already aware of um, the uh, what what the pandemic, basically the effects of the pandemic in terms of violence. And yeah, most of us would have seen a huge spike in um, the number of, especially because especially, this was highlighted in the media a lot, um, domestic violence cases. I mean, for Awam, if I'm not mistaken... The number of cases actually got up quite a bit. Like, I mean, we had just last year, okay, because I wasn't here in 2020, I only got in 2021. Um, the number of domestic violence cases last year alone was 212 cases. And um, to my understanding, that's actually much higher than um, the number of domestic violence cases Alam gets in a, over the last few years. That's right. the highest, I think. And then for sexual harassment, if you to combine, um, you know, physical, you know, face-to-face -face ones and also the online ones, that's like, also 200 plus 227 cases, roughly. And out of those cases, right, online actually was quite close to 45% um, of, of the total number of sexual harassment cases. Um, as of this year, um, as of June this year, um, the numbers have dropped significantly. But as you can see, um, the pandemic definitely does play a role in um, contributing to the spike. And especially with regards to online um, sexual crimes. I mean, by that, I'm referring to online sexual harassment. And in the case of children, I mean, through statistics, again, by the police and by the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development, um, there is a huge spike as well in um, online child pornography, uh, online child sexual exploitation, and etc. So, and we can expect this trend to continue, especially, you know, with our younger generations becoming digital citizens, right? I right. mean, some of them, they even expose the internet since they're kids. Yep. So um, the risk, they become a lot more vulnerable than previous generations, you know, to these crimes. So um, it's thus important to make sure that our prevention work, our response work, 
our legislations are robust. I don't know if you came across this. Uh, it was a child sexual exploitation and abuse study right. region, um, across many countries. Malaysia was one of the countries right. that were sampled. Right. And uh, Malaysia actually, surprisingly, fell behind Indonesia, Thailand, and Philippines, and Vietnam. We're only ahead of Cambodia in preventing child sexual exploitation and abuse. The report acknowledges that our we have a couple of robust legislations and the Sexual Offences Against Children Act 2017 was cited. But um, this report briefly mentioned gaps in how we respond to these cases. So um, it's important that, I mean, you can as we can see, um, you know, we for example, D11, right, we need to make sure that this D11, this division um, does have enough capacity to address these issues, especially, you know, going back to what I've mentioned, um, cases of online sexual abuse um, involving women and children. Um, other ones would probably be um, implementation of sexual offences against children at 2017. Um, I would say the other huge part is um, sensitivity of the frontliners. Right. And I, by that, I mean not just in... Um, the police force, but also among healthcare professionals. And by healthcare professionals, I mean in especially public hospitals, um, because the one-stop crisis center, they are right there, right, in public hospitals, and you can expect survivors of, you know, gender-based violence to walk in. And we can reasonably also expect, you know, child survivors, right? Um, so OSCC, or one-stop crisis center, is a very, very good concept on paper. But when it comes to implementation, I mean, since this 2012 study, I think by another expert, if I remember correctly, um, there have been many gaps that are highlighted. So one would be, um, you know, many external constraints, for example, like you have because of the nature of the staff's work and, you know, the high staff turnover. So there is very, very much difficult. There's a, very much a lot of difficulty um, in assuring that OSCC um, functions are actually fully realized. Um, you also have, I think, um, the sustainability of OSCC itself because of the nature of funds. If I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> OSCC, to some extent, they're parked under the expenses of individual hospitals. Right. So whether OSCCs are even implemented in all public hospitals, that one I also cannot say. Although by right, it should be in every public hospital. So... I guess that's one thing the you know the government should look into because Malaysia was the pioneer in the OSCC model. We were very well known for that, in fact. So shouldn't we, in fact, be fully realizing this this concept? So one one thing that I'll probably bring up would be to make sure that you know that the government actually allocates enough funds to ensure that OSCC can be implemented feasibly by the hospitals and also um other measures that I'll probably speak about later. Right. But yeah, so that's pretty much OSCC. And um, last but not least, I would just like to emphasize again on the sensitivity of um, the other frontliners because this can this can pretty much perpetuate um, in many ways underreporting because when survivors hear from others that, oh, you know, X, Y, Z survivors tried to, you know, for example, file a police report at the police station and they actually ended up getting trivialized for their experiences or actually end up getting victim blamed or even encounter, for example, refusal by the frontliner to file um, a police report due right. to factors. For example, like lack of awareness of XYZ procedures, um, this can really erode trust by the public 
in our social welfare systems and criminal justice systems um, for them to be able to seek redress. And this can perpetuate basically what I've mentioned, underreporting. Um, and we are not able then to address violence much more effectively. So in that sense, the government should also prioritize on um, regular sensitivity um, outreach or initiatives among um, frontliners to make sure that they're able to carry out um, you know, what they're supposed to do um, in terms of um, helping or supporting survivors. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now that we've talked about some of the challenges uh, that women have faced um, this year, especially, so let's talk about how Budget 2023 should address these issues. Um, Prof, um, you brought up uh, earlier the challenges when it comes to the inequality and inequity when it comes to um, um, the workforce. How should Budget 2023 address this problem? This is where I want to talk about the proposal that is going to be presented by the Gender Budget Group. So we are coming up with a memorandum. Uh, uh, basically, it will be called Gender Responsive Budgeting Towards an Inclusive and Resilient Nation for All. This is a memorandum that we want to bring up where we divide the issue into economic opportunity and participation, uh, education, the issue of health, particularly also the issue of gender-based violence, leadership and decision-making. So these are the areas that we feel that uh, uh, needs to be uh, to be addressed as far as uh, looking at the budget and to make the budget gender responsive. But I think the most important thing first is really about to really formally internalize the gender responsive budgeting uh, in the budget process because the policy on budget responsive uh, uh, on gender responsive budgeting on GRB was already introduced as Dina uh, mentioned was already introduced in the the government uh, of Malaysia since 2000 uh, around 2004 right the right. policy the uh, policy itself and in 2005 and 2006 there were actually uh, a pilot uh, implementation of uh, five ministries to do a, a pilot of implementing um, uh, gender responsive budgeting but more recently um, uh, actually one of my students is doing her a study on uh, on the uh, GRB within the within the context of the uh, civil service organizations, and we found that actually there is a, a, a severe lack of understanding about GRB still amongst uh, policy actors. So I think this is a very important issue. Um, uh, a, a very important issue is really also uh, about data. So when we talk about gender responsive budgeting. Uh, data and evidence is really very important. So when we talk about data, one of the uh, one of the important aspect of data is sex disaggregated data. Right. You know? right. The, the, while the uh, the uh, Department of Statistics already slowly collecting sex disaggregated, uh, disaggregated data, I think this is is more important to be more aggressive about sex disaggregated data and uh, collecting basically gen uh, gender data. Our, our wish list for the budget in 2023, I think whatever programs that have been implemented or whatever programs that have been planned in 2022, especially if, if, those, pro if those programs are still not being implemented, I think it, it's very, very important to seriously relook at, uh, at those plans, at those programs. And actually, as you said, uh, to be able to scrutinize the, the allocation and the implementation of the programs. Uh, that uh, you know, so so to be more to be more uh, transparent, um, to show how how the projects have been done, how the projects have, have been successful, and what are the lessons that, that that can be learned from those projects. Most of the time, when when we allocate budget, it's not. So, it, I mean, 
especially when we, we allocate a, a large amount of uh, uh, of funds, uh, it should not be a kind of only the the the, the outcome should not only be uh, at the end of the year you need to show this, but right. it should show also sustainability. Okay, so I think um, our our um, uh, 12 Malaysia plan already is already premised very very clearly on. Uh, on sustainable development goals, so I think these are these are many frameworks that can be used, and definitely the the uh, gender responsive budgeting is is very aligned uh, with the 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 sustainable development goals. You have to ensure that programs are sustainable. You have to address all the seventeen goals uh, uh, in the SDGs uh, in in framing uh, programs. So I think so. This is why um, uh, in our in our perspective, these are some of the more immediate things that need to be done in terms of. Uh, the area. So, for example, we we want to see uh, better programs, better be- better allocations, better implementation of the budget in economic opportunity and participation under the Global Gender Gap Index report. Uh, Malaysia constantly, consistently fare disadvantageously uh, as far as economic opportunity and participation uh, is concerned. You know, so we need to address all the different components uh, 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 as far as gaps are concerned in economic opportunity and participation. And we need specific allocations for this. We need to look at the uh, the female labor force participation rate. Why is it still low? How do we increase? You know, so so if RMK12 uh, mentioned this, you know, 59%, what are the kind of budget that we need to ensure that from 51% this year or 55% last year, how do we how do we ensure that we will get to fifty nine percent? Otherwise, there is no point of targeting uh, a, a, a number because you know. So so we need to understand that we are, we will be able to achieve uh, the target of fifty nine percent. We are one of the lowest female labor force participation rate in ASEAN countries. You know, so so we do need to be really concerned about it. We, we need to look at women in the informal sector. How social security can be. Um, uh, can be applied to them, you know, how, how they can get um, uh, social security and, and so on. In education, we need to look at the, the, the issue of uh, teenage pregnancies and child marriage and how this uh, impact on uh, school dropouts, ability, ability to go to school, ability to be, to be advanced. Although in education, in the university, of course, there are already 65% of students are already female. Right. Um, but we also need to worry about why other women are not going into the labor force when they right. are very well qualified. So these are all interconnected. Um, as far as health is concerned, actually education and health is one of the uh, Malaysia has more impressive achievements in health and education. But there are still these issues that need to be uh, to be addressed. So so basically, when you talk about health, I mean, of course, uh, health services in Malaysia is one of the best in the world. Uh, but is affordable healthcare equally accessible to men and women? So when we when we think about women in rural areas, you know, do they have access to sexual and reproductive health services? Uh, can they make their own decision about their sexual and reproductive health uh, reproductive health and rights? Do they still have to depend on their husband to determine whether they get access, whether they can they, whether they can uh, access any particular services? Mental health issues, especially in relation to in relation to the the, the COVID nineteen, because women are severely impacted by uh, uh, by mental health issues uh, due to the the, the pandemic. Um, Gender based violence definitely is part of a health issue, but it can also be a, a, a broader uh, broader issue. So these are some of the things that we are, we want to see. The gender based violence issue, we want to look at more. Um, you know, consist. I think in the last. Uh, in the last two years, the budget has been allocated 
mostly for domestic violence. I think very very important because domestic violence are very impact uh, was was uh, really impacted by by COVID. Uh, but so also other type other types of uh, uh, gender based violence, sexual harassment, child sexual abuse, particularly grooming, um, stalking, um, child marriage, human trafficking, and 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 so on. And also uh, I think um, 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 from my personal uh, uh, opinion, also technology facilitated violence against women, uh, which is more pervasive. Uh, what are the social and structural bar- barriers for leadership uh, for women when, especially when women are dropping out? You know, because uh, uh, women started, uh, so they drop out because their their reproductive and productive life coincides. You know, uh, so women uh, uh, on average, women in Malaysia got married at 20, 27, 20, uh, 27, 28. and then they, the 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 first age uh, the first age at uh, first child is actually around thirty. So, but this is also the time when they were building their careers, and suddenly they drop at at twenty nine, at thirty to thirty four. There is a, a a a big drop for right. women from the work from the workforce. So you can actually predict the reason for that. I mean, uh, there has been also a study by UNDP in two thousand uh, in two thousand six that showed that the the reason that that women drop out was because uh, uh they they had to cater to uh to to childcare to family care and and so on. So I think these are some of the issues. If if uh, childcare and family friendly policies are not in place uh, at the workplace, are not are not being determined, are not being um, made uh, as policy in the workplace, so we will continue to experience a situation like this. We, we will continue to experience lack of leadership amongst uh, you know uh, a, a lack of candidates for leadership among women because you can say oh there is no there is no um, there is no limitation. Both men and women can become leaders, you know. But if you don't facilitate the 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 field, uh, the the playing field is already unequal, you know. So um, uh, the 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 unequal gender division of labor at home uh, contributes. So 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 workplace needs to be family friendly, uh, and this can this should be this should be clear policy, not just not just a kind of optional practice and and so right. on. So this must be clear. It must come up from the from the government. There must be allocation of funds to ensure businesses can uh, make uh, uh, the, the 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 workplace uh, family friendly. For example, there are a lot of uh, a lot of arguments by the SMEs that they cannot provide 90, 94 days maternity leave for women because they are small. So so if they allow that, then uh, they will lose out. So so there must be a bigger framework of of how to tackle this. You know, we have to look at. At other countries in Europe, in UK, and so on, to see how they have tackled this, you know, like having, for example, like having a, a, a large insurance scheme to cater, you know, to cater to um, uh, women taking leave, and there should be parental leave to equalize the position of uh, uh, gender division, uh, unequal gender division of labor. We need to to recognize there are a lot, there are many fathers uh, who want to be equally involved in parenting. And one of the things that the that the uh, that the government can facilitate is by by creating this practice through law. So making sure that uh, we don't only have uh, the, the 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 paternity leave needs to be equal. If you're talking about paternity leave, but I think ultimately we need to have parental leave rather than only paternity leave and maternity leave. So I think these are some of the issues that will be brought up by GBG, um, the Gender Budget Group. Fantastic. So there is a lot um, of issues clearly um, that you know needs to be addressed. Um, Janelle, is there anything else that, that you'd like to add on when it comes to the wish list for Budget 2023? Prof Norada has covered every, everything. I don't need to go into But what I'd like to emphasize 
it's just, I mean, um, so so in case anyone is still confused by how the GRB process should be happening within mm-hmm. ministry. So by right, um, there should be like, so every ministry should be doing their own, should be applying the GRB mindset or framework as you would like um, as they come up with their, you know, expenditures and stuff. So that's very important to remember. And as such, by right, there would be a gender focal point or gender focal team set up in every ministry. So that's what the gender budget group is looking to, hoping to see in all government ministries in the country. Um, To my understanding, um, WAO and and Gender Consultancy on behalf of the gender budget group, they have already conducted um, GRB training slot with um, the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development and the Ministry of Entrepreneurship, if I remember correctly. So there are the other ministries that have yet to undergo this training properly. So I guess I fully... I definitely reflect what Prof. Narayda has mentioned at the very beginning, which is that it is important to institutionalize this mindset across all levels within all ministries as soon as possible. Because if not, then whatever that's going to be churned out for the national budget for every year, even after, even from next year onwards, they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to be conducive because the GRB mindset is not fully applied. That's very important. Um, the second la- and last point I'd like to emphasize is um interministerial or interagency collaborations. Um, because the the key message I think that Prof. Narada also wanted to bring out, in my opinion, is the intersectionality again of all issues. So one issue is interconnected with another. So let me give you an example, right? Child marriage. Huh? So I think under the Pakatan Harapan government back then, DS uh, Wan Aziza actually released the national strategy plan um, to handle the causes of child marriage, right? And if you look at the causes of child marriage in the document released by the Ministry of Women at that time, you will see that it spreads out across the portfolios of multiple ministries. Right. For example, the key factor, one of the key factors, the top one is actually low household income and poverty. So you can imagine that it is not just within the Ministry of Women's portfolio, it also goes under the other ministry's portfolio. Second, low school attack. Um, low education and poor school attendance and whose portfolio is it under the Ministry of Education, right? So the list goes on and you and if you go to, there are some issues where they are more specific, yes, but there are other women's rights issues that are a lot more broader, which requires very, very effective inter-ministerial collaborations. Um, yes, it's good to have a GRB process institutionalized, but at the same time, I think it's very important to also see much more cr- fruitful collaborations between ministries, even between the hopefully upcoming gender focal points across the ministries to understand in a more collaborative and a more um, comprehensive manner, um, you know, like how they can work together to actually with their respective areas of expertise and their respective portfolios to actually address these complex um issues because if not um you can have all the budget allocations that you want but whether these budget allocations effectively address the needs of women in general and i mean later drilling down to all the different you know women from different walks of life well we can't address it effectively if if there's no um collaboration so these are the two points that i'd like to emphasize lah. Absolutely. Mm. Before we wrap this conversation up, would y'all have a final message for us, um, starting with you, Prof. Norida? The government needs to make clear commitments to gender-responsive budgeting. 
the policy is already there. As I mentioned, um, around 2004, we don't need to reinvent the wheel in terms of establishing a new. But I think we just need to make sure that the policy actors, um, uh, both uh, makers and implementers, uh, uh, internalize uh, GRB. There's not a lot of procedural matters that needs to be changed, but I think the most important thing is the understanding of, uh, about uh, why GRB is important, why GRB will ensure both uh, gender justice and fiscal justice. So I think it's not it's not just about um, uh, about creating uh, gender justice in a sense or about benefiting women. It's really about uh, social justice and also uh, fiscal justice. Thank you. Janelle? Thanks. Thanks, Dasha. So for me, um, well, first message, keep the GRB process going and faster <laughs> in short. <laughs> second, second, GRB shouldn't just be at the level of the federal government ministries. Huh? It should trickle down to the constituency level, you know. Uh, so just to hop back to, I, I don't think this is widely publicized, actually. So um, the Westminster Foundation for Democracy actually worked with, I think, in gender consultancy. Um, to carry out a GRB exercise among certain MPs, and one of them was YB Wong Chen. Ah, uh, yeah, to implement GRB at the constituency level. So yeah, you you implement the budget allocations. Um, you know, uh, among the ministries, fine. But some of them actually get get trickled down to um the MPs and the adults, right? So they also have to know how to use the money in a much more gender sensitive manner, right? And they also have to make sure that they're responsive to the realities and needs of their own constituents, correct? So it's very important that this GRB mindset gets trickled down to all levels. Um, and I do believe that if we do go a long way in making sure that this GRB mindset is institutionalized, I think we would have fought at least half the battle when it comes to gender sensitivity, honestly. Um, because when you're very when you're very attuned to understanding the lived realities and needs of women, for example, then I guess you will be a lot more critical when it comes to the comments that you make, um, your own perceptions um, about, you know, the issues and challenges that women face. So yes, I do believe that by institutionalizing the GRB mindset, um, we would definitely go a long way in enhancing our gender responsiveness and also gender sensitivity. But yeah. On thank that, you. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been speaking to Janelle Tan, Information and Communications Officer at the All Women Action Society and Prof. Dr. Noraida Endut, Professor at UNIT for Research on Women and Gender, Kanita. Both Janelle and Prof. Noraida are part of the Gender Budget Group. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. This BFM Budget 2023 special was brought to you by Marsing. Reinvent spaces. Enhance life. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.